Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in November 2017 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California. Discussing the Academy Award-winning movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, a darkly comic crime drama about a woman who rents three billboards outside her town to criticize the police response to the unsolved murder of her teenage daughter, we were joined by writer-producer-director Martin McDonough, actor Sam Rockwell, and producer Graham Broadbent. The panel was hosted by John Horn. Here's John. Uh, good evening. My name's John Horn, the host of The Frame on KPCC. Thank you all for coming out. Um, Let's bring up our panel, writer, producer, director, Martin McDonough. <laughs> producer, Graham Broadbent. Actor, Sam Rockwell. <laughs> uh, I want to clear up one thing. There is no Ebbing, Missouri. Is that right? No. Okay. Not this- yet. Okay, there might be, still be. There yeah, could if be the, if the p- film catches on. <laughs> you'll 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 be the first film at the Ebbing uh, Film Festival. Um, I want to ask you about a. I think it was a bus drive, a train trip you took twenty years past. Uh, yeah, a bus uh, uh, trip across the southern states somewhere where I saw something very similar to to what we see on our billboards uh, uh, in a field um, somewhere in the south, which stuck in my mind for like ten years, and I didn't. It, you know, write it down, but I knew it, had, it, it was horrible enough and outrageous enough to, to be the seed of a story. And uh, I got the idea that it, a mother put it there and, uh, and then the character of Mildred just popped out. So this was 10 years past or when you started writing? Started writing uh, eight years ago. I mean, started and finished it eight years ago. And then has it been gestating since then or did you have to put it down before you had to? Um, it was kind of it, like I always write a thing and then just don't really, I'm kind of too lazy to do anything about it for, for a few years. Unless <laughs> um, Graham, um, my producer. Uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just left it in a, in a, not even in a drawer, it was just, you know, in, uh, on the floor. Um, <laughs> So at least it would, you know, stay in my mind. Uh, and but then we went back to it, I guess, five years ago, and and said we should do it, and then sent it straight to Francis, and then sent it to Sam. Wow. So what was right about the timing in terms of the way in which you could make the movie, the independence that you would have producing and directing it? Why was that time right, and what were the important things as a producer that you wanted to make sure your filmmaker had? Um, the timing is partly about how often Martin will make a film, and that doesn't happen as often as we might all like. Um, but the script was written, and I read it before we made Seven Psychopaths, which we shot here in Los Angeles. Um, I think as a producer with talent like Martin, what you're trying to do is to just set up the very best, safest environment to enable him to do his best work with the actors. So we made this with uh, Fox, who distribute worldwide and film for in the UK. But the structure of it was such that Martin had the authority as a filmmaker to do what was right for the film and to make his very best film. I mean, it was set up that way and everyone was very supportive of that process. When you are writing a movie like this, you're writing specifically for Francis and writing specifically for Sam. Yep. 
What happens if they're not interested? Um, how do you, you I, 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 I mean, that's a serious question. Obviously they were. Screwed. <laughs> you're completely screwed. Um, yeah, you are. But uh, luckily they know a good thing when they see one, so. <laughs> Um, no, but no, but you would like. I can't imagine anyone no. else in the, in those two parts. Um, uh, you know, because they're the best of their generation. Um, so, so it it, you know, you you could probably do do something, but it, you know, it wouldn't be good. So. Luckily, yeah. luckily, uh, didn't have to cross that bridge. One of the things that the film is very careful about, and I suspect it, it is in working with your actors, about tone and about sentimentality and whether or not these actors are going to sentimentalize the characters that they are playing. What were the conversations that you had with Sam about playing the character, not judging the character at the same time? I think it's always pretty easy when we talk about it. You know, it, it's it's never like a... A big deal. We just kind of like, eh, we adjust things here and there. We'll read it out loud. You and I usually get together and read it out loud. Yeah. Um, we, um, but but we we know never to sentimentalize or patronize the characters. Uh, it's just part part in our DNA, I guess. Especially if it's a, a working class character, because that's sort of our backgrounds to 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 a big degree. And Francis too. So that would never really. Uh, come into play. Basically, it's it's just about finding the truth of a of a character. If you if you go for the truth, then those uh, issues don't really come into play. Where do you find the truth of Dixon, and where do you imagine what what do you imagine has brought him to where he is at the beginning of the story? Uh, you know, in retrospect, I think he was probably beaten by his father or something. I I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't really think about that, but. Now I something, but in his relationship with his mother, is uh, very odd. Uh, um, normal to me. Normal, sure, in a kind of Hamlet way. Um, but yeah, Coriolanus way. Anyway, so he I, Irish way. Irish way, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, he's uh, he's a complicated guy. He's, he's a, definitely an interesting character to play. I mean, it's, it's a great part that that Martin wrote for me. So it's it's a great part. And you play something not that dissimilar in another movie, right? So are you kind of the go-to yeah. clan type? <laughs> yeah, I play a Ku Klux Klan uh, member, a true story with Taraji Henson, and uh, I did some research for that. I've been playing a lot of rednecks. Yeah. <laughs> so well. So well, yes. What's, what's that all about? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm a city kid, so I can't quite figure it out. <laughs> you make a decision at the very beginning to set this in the South and... Why is that important and why? Well, let's talk about that. Why was it important to set the story in the South, first of all? Um, well, I guess I saw those billboards in the South, um, but for the sort of racial aspects of the, of the story, uh, for that background to work, I think it, it needed to be one of the old uh, Southern states. Um, and Missouri particularly, uh, just three syllables. I wrote it like eight years ago, so it wasn't uh, in direct response to you know Ferguson or any, anything else that's been going on there over the last couple of years um, but there was a, a, a time when, when we were just about to make it Graham that we thought well do we keep it there is it because it will seem like it is a, a direct uh, response but then we thought you know it's there, there's an integrity to, to that there was an integrity integrity to that choice eight years ago so we'll 
keep it that way. And, that, and we shouldn't be scared of addressing those issues. And how do you cast the city? I mean, how do you, because you have to find a city that is going to make, meet the demands of the script that is going to feel as if it's an authentic city. Where did you look and where did you find your ebbing? Mississippi for a second, weren't we? <laughs> were we? Yeah. Honestly, we went, it's strange because you live in London where I do. And I don't know the United States so well, particularly the middle bits. So you have this map of states and tax credits and things like that. What's, what's clear is that um, all the ambitions, if you put people together like Sam and Fran and Martin and Woody, the, the reach for everything that everyone wants to do is so much bigger than a budget, a normal budget is going to give you. And yet you don't want a towering budget that gives you all the pressures and... Bland, you know, encourages blandness. Um, so you look for tax credit states. In this version, um, Martin was on on tour, almost through various tax credit states. It was Mississippi at one stage. North Carolina offered us ultimately a town of silver, which is a one street town, which mm. featured in the film. Beautiful place in real life. What was important, I think, to Martin and the designer was the relationship between the police station and the advertising agency. Uh, and that one street told that story. So Martin can tell more about that. Um, yes, it was to find sort of an iconic small town um, in, in the south and some uh, a place that felt like it could be a character in the film. Not as much as, you know, Bruges was, but it, but to feel like the, 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 the town had its own personality to, to a degree. But the proximity of, of, of one side to the other was quite important and to find a place that we could use as a police station and literally for that two minute shot we wanted to find a place where a character could walk from one side to the other upstairs throw someone out all of that was uh, in the forefront of our minds when we picked the town when you wrote this uh, and had you written a scene of police brutality against a uh a black person was that in your original script no i mean this script is is right. exactly as as was um and that was never we never really find out if it's if it's completely true or not to be honest um i don't know what your intentions were yes. playing it but i think he probably did it i think feels like dixon could have done it yeah he probably dixon? did something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah probably did something yeah probably did something um, we know what it's like for actors who work in theater to work in film, but I'm interested in directors who have worked in theater, working in film. What do you find to be the most, the greatest benefit of having worked in theater and what does that give you and what does it not give you in terms of being able to direct? Um, a love of actors, really. I mean, I've, I've never directed any of my plays, but I've been in the rehearsal room for every one, for every, every day, basically. And, um, uh, you, I, and I've been doing it since I was 25, I guess. So you don't really, at the time, realize uh, the connection you have with actors. But like every day you'd be talking about the lines or the intentions or the story and all that stuff as a writer. Um, so when I got to make my first you know, short and, and, the, and the first feature, um, I didn't realize that I'd stored up um, uh, a lot of... Um, uh, just, just I knew knew how to talk to actors, and I, and I like actors, and I like listening to them, and I like trying to help with that process. So that's the biggest um, thing I brought from from theatre to film. I think. I want to ask you about a couple of scenes. I want to ask you about the speech to the priest, uh, which is an amazing, great monologue. Is that something that? Uh... It's all improv. That's all Fran. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think she went too far. 
Um, I don't know. Tell me about the genesis of that of that monologue and that scene. I guess it's it, just something I've always wanted to say. He's <laughs> trying to <laughs> simple as that. You've always wanted to say it, and you finally found the movie in which yeah. you could fit it in. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have the courage to, so uh, let a strong woman do it for me. What were the uh, what were the scenes that you found maybe Sam the most difficult to do the, the the darker places you had to go to things about physical violence were there certain things that you anticipated when you read the script being difficult and those proved to be the harder scenes to do? No, all that dark stuff is really fun. You know, <laughs> that's fun to do. You know, violence is in movies to me is like dance. I like to dance, and so it, seriously, it's like chore choreographed. Uh, Violence is, if as long as it's safe and no one gets hurt, you have a good stunt choreographer. I think it's um, fun, you know. And going to those dark places emotionally are what I was trained to do, and it's, a, it's occasionally even cathartic to do it, you know. There's another scene I want to ask about, and that's when Francis, a character, stops and talks to the news reporter on the side of the road, <laughs> which is a great scene. Could you talk about shooting that and what it was like and how that scene came together um that was a lot of fun but it was it was it was tricky because francis would nail it every single time every single time but we did like eight or nine takes and we we could only use the last one because it was all about the timing of right seeing her pass by the the reporter and get the line out before she then passed the camera so it was all literally about slowing the car down there was n nothing about it was about performance it was just literally yeah yeah just yeah, 25 miles an hour instead of uh, 30 was gonna get us you know um but but performance wise it was it was you know the same every time it was fantastic but there was something really joyful about that last take it was like the best one and the timing worked and yeah and, and actually, when you shot that, um, one of the people from Fox, Nancy Utley, was over, and I was standing beside the monitor with her, and we saw it. And when that last tape worked brilliantly, I just said, that, that's the trailer, that's the trailer. Oh, really? It had such spirit to it, and it does close off the Red Band trailer. It says a lot about Francis <laughs> and the film and what's yeah. going on and what Martin's wit and humour and uh, drama does. <laughs> The ending feels totally perfect, and yet it's an ending that audiences who are conditioned to tidy endings wouldn't feel comfortable with. Was that ending essential? Did you ever fluctuate? Was that always the way that it had to be? Um, it was always that way in the script. Um, we th there, are, there are almost a couple of uh, false endings before yeah. that, and there was a time when we kind of went back and forth a little bit about uh, what would be the coolest or the most cinematic way to end it, but... I kind of, I mean, I, lo I love the ambiguity of that ending and I love that it's not about vigilantism right. in, in, in those final moments when it could be like one minute before that. Um, so, so and, I, and, and even though it's kind of messy and a little strange right. and ends abruptly, I, I like that in a film. I like that. Um, and I like that it's not a, a case that's wrapped up uh, because I think you can review a film that ends like this you know, more than once. But if it's if it's something that's perfect. I mean, if it's a procedural, if they if it's a who done it, then you know, and it's like it doesn't exactly, yeah. So that the audience, if it's a who done it, they the satisfaction is figuring out or seeing who's done it, as opposed to who didn't do it. I mean, it's it's, yeah. a, it's a totally different question. Yes, yes, because this film becomes more about uh, uh, how are these people changing, and uh, and and is there hope for for people who begin a story so angrily?
mm-hmm. and so um, and have, having made like such horrible choices and brutish choices, is there room for hope? Um, and that became the story instead of you know. Um, I mean, once Woody does what he does in the middle of the film, it becomes not about solving the case. It becomes, is there hope to be found with these people? You write very specifically and you write with beautiful language. When you're working with actors like Sam and Francis and Woody, and maybe Sam, you can answer this, what kind of room do you give them, not to rewrite, but to interpret? Uh, what? What was that? <laughs> what was that word? Interpret. Interpret. <laughs> oh. I, yeah. I heard rewrite, and I just no. But if there is uh, <laughs> no, that's depending that's, on the flexibility. Is it sometimes better to not have you know wide flexibility, or do you like to stay very close to what's on the page? We we stay we 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 say what's on the page. I think it's like a play. I mean, you know, Martin's one of the great writers of you know. I, I put him up there with Tarantino and Pinter and mm-hmm. Sam Shepard and David Mamet. I think it's it's just. It's our roadmap, and you don't re- really need anything else. But you know, occasionally you've gotten you've gotten liberal with us. You've let us kind of. It's more like garnish, you know. If we ad lib, you know, it's not part of the main meal. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about Pinter because Pinter, as a writer, is also very funny, and I think a lot of people don't know that or don't appreciate. I agree. I agree completely. So when you're editing the film, was it important to make sure that you preserved? a Pinteresque uh, sense of humor, that it was dark, but there were moments of levity and that these people, even though they're in difficult cir- circumstances, are having occasionally a light moment. Um, well, the, the fun and, and the comedy was, was always in there. Like it, it was in there, I guess, in, in the script and it was there on, 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 in all of the scenes that we filmed. But weirdly, it was, it was almost the opposite. It was, it was, there was, there were too many. There, we cut out about six scenes that were just too, too, too much fun. To uh, you know, uh, and the tone. yeah, yeah, they just just uh, unbalanced it a little bit. And and there was like some great stuff that Sam did, like some a couple of great drunk scenes and a, and a drunk scene with his mom. Um, that was a good one. The yeah. drunk scene with the mom. Yeah, we in had bed. A, it was good sub DVD extras. Are gonna <laughs> yeah, be like, oh we um, slept in the same room. <laughs> Two twin beds, yeah. Two twin beds. Um, but uh, pushed together on opposite no, sides. No, that would be okay. weird. Okay. Well, I, 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 I went to my bed drunk. Can I tell him what the scene was? And, yeah. And I, I, got, I drunkenly crawled into bed with my mother in the twin bed. Platonically, platonically. Platonically, but just said, what did I say? I said, what did I say to her? I said, uh, just her. you love her and you give her a big cuddle. <laughs> and you kind of slap her head. <laughs> kind of kind of love to see that scene. <laughs> Have you not seen it? How about, I haven't seen it. I got it right. It here. was so weird. <laughs> Let's check it out. <laughs> Sandy, how about Sandy Martin who plays the mom? Yeah, uh, exactly. She was in Napoleon Dynamite and stuff. You've seen her in a bunch She's of stuff. brilliant. So, so it, was, it was kind of like taking out someone said to me at a very early uh, screening for friends um of a rough cut um don't be scared of it being a tragedy this is a tragedy uh and, and at that stage there was still a bunch of these these fun scenes in it and it was really easy to lose them after i heard that and and focused on that a little bit so and, and in doing so all of the the com- comedic scenes remain intact the, the the ones that are already there but it just meant that the balance was, was uh, better. I want to ask you about your choice of composer. Carter Burwell did an amazing job in scoring Fantastic. this film. 
And you also used some songs. So what was your convers what were your conversation with Carter about? What did you feel he needed to bring to the film? And how did you collaborate with him? Um, I always kind of let Carter do whatever the hell he pleases because <laughs> he's so good. Um, but he came up with this uh, uh, sort of Western, spaghetti yep. Western motif for, uh, for Francis. He called it her war theme. And it, it was just like perfect as soon as he played it, like just, you know, three or four descending notes. Um, and it wasn't what I imagined uh but it but as soon as i heard it i thought it was uh, amazing and it gave it gives the the film an entire entirely different tone that i hadn't quite uh envisaged um and but carter's always one for like doing the opposite of what you would expect in a scene if it's a comedy scene he'll play it sad and if it's a sad one he won't lay on the the, the strings you know um so, uh, and it's the third time of working with him and it's, it's been brilliant every time. And then like, I usually have like a list of like 20 songs that I'd like to get into a film um, or that kind of convey the tone in my head. And Towns Van Zandt was, uh, was a big one. Uh, he's like one of the great uh, country poets, I think of American music. Um, and so we use a song of his twice, the one that, that's at the very end, which I love uh, is a cover version by Amy Amell, I think her name is. Um, so I wanted to get something like that in, but ABBA is in there too. I like a bit of ABBA. You like a bit of we ABBA? We love ABBA. Too, oh, I like a little ABBA, yeah. <laughs> um, but then there's a Joan Baez, and uh, it, there's the, an eclectic uh, bunch, but it's all sort of my taste. And it, it, What's the song in the bar when, when I'm um, beat up? Uh, oh, the yeah, that's, that's the Joan Baez, um, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. But there's a song in the beginning before Oh, that. Walk Away Renee by the yeah. Four Tops. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's amazing. So you write this movie for Frances. She says yes, and then you get on set. What is it like, or even in rehearsal, when you have imagined and heard this actor saying these lines of dialogue, and then to have her in the room saying the lines of dialogue? Uh, what do you remember that being like? Uh, scary, <laughs> um, because it's Francis. And uh, no, like, brilliant. But it's weird that, especially when you have written something for, for someone, you've, you've, it's almost like you've already heard them yeah. say the lines. And it's the same with, with Sam's stuff too. Like it's, you've, you, so when, you, when they're saying them on set, it's just, you've already heard it strangely. And then sometimes if it doesn't, if it's not the way you've heard it, maybe that's a way in, but you should be careful about that because there has to be room for them to, to take it to their own place too. We're talking about Woody too, and about casting Woody Harrelson, and how important that was, and when he came onto the project. Well, Woody, uh, as we always say, he's he's just such a lovely guy, uh, like such a decent-hearted human being that that he, that character needed that instantly because because our sympathies are always going to go straight to to Mildred, to Francis. So we needed like, and he doesn't have a lot of time to play with, of course, in the film. So it needed to be some an actor in there who's completely. Uh, someone you, you just love, mm -hmm. despite his, his flaws or, or whatever else. Um, and yeah, so Woody, Woody came on pretty early too, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And it's obviously the second film that we've all done with him. Yeah. Because he was in Seven Psychopaths as well. But I love Woody in this one just because he's, because that good hearted sense is there. And because he's not playing the natural outlaw, the outsider, right. you know, he, he has a different note and Martin's found that with him. Yeah, and in fact, like the uh, the the letters uh, that are sort of peppered through the second half, yep. he recorded them in 
10 minutes at the end of his his day uh like his we were clean clearing up the cameras and Before he some, left. someone said yeah. we've forgotten to do the letters so yeah. we went to a back room of the police station <laughs> and just did it back to back in one because you didn't want this to be tied up neatly when you're thinking about what the police have and have not done, do you have a conversation of whether or not they've been competent, whether or not they failed, whether or not they've tried, or is it best left unsaid and unknown? Um, I think, no, I think Woody's character is, is right when he says they have tried and it's just one of those crimes that are, that's impossible to, to, to solve. Um, I don't think the behavior of, you know, Sam's character, et cetera, is helping anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so he does Lucas. save the file. He does rescue the file to make yeah, sure that yeah. there's something that maybe can go forward. Yeah, true. But 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 it is. It, it's it's. I mean, most crimes, you know, don't get solved, and that's part of the story. Was who you know what happens to people left behind when that's true. Let me ask this last question. You see this billboard. You have a vague memory of it. Twenty years past. Do you ever try to figure out who it was? What happened? No, but like just since the the film's been coming out, I've just been trying to monitor that to see if there's uh, you know any f information's coming out. And there was one little lead I saw just yesterday, uh, today actually, but it wasn't uh, the same billboards. I'm like I've got such a weird. I, I saw this thing for like a split <laughs> second, and. Uh, but it stayed in, in it's still there but so I'd, if i could see an image of it now it'd be strange and but i'd like to know what happened with that case too but like the movie we might ne never know <laughs> martin sam graham thank you so much for coming thank you, thank you guys for thank sticking you. around thank you thanks for listening to academy conversations uncut we hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.